พุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสังฆ์ I'd like to begin this evening's contemplation with a verse from the Dhammapada verse number two which perhaps uh, some of you will be already familiar with which says all states of being are determined by the heart it is the heart that leads the way as surely as our shadow never leaves us so happiness follows when we speak or act from a pure heart so obviously we're all keen on happiness yes. however are we really able to act or speak from our hearts let alone from a pure heart and The talk I gave three weeks ago considered how how much so many of us are identified up in our heads, and how it can be really rather difficult for a lot of people to abide in the heart domain and to, to feel what's going on in their hearts, let alone to act or speak from their heart. And I don't believe it always was this way. I think there's causes for it to be this way. This is a, a recent development, probably to a large degree, down to the kind of education that secular materialism has produced, and undoubtedly other reasons. Certainly, it's not the case for all cultures, and. Those of you that have travelled and into other cultures and would have seen, not everybody is getting around as if everything's happening up in their heads. And a lot of people are much more embodied than than we generally are. And elsewhere, I've mentioned that occasion where we had a Young Thai monk visiting us here, abbot of a small monastery in the northeast of Thailand somewhere, and he was spending some time with us. And he related how he had a conversation with a visitor to the monastery, and his English wasn't great. However, it was adequate to be able to ask this young woman that was visiting why was she uh, visiting the monastery, and and he was actually puzzled when. She replied that she was looking for peace and happiness, and and this young monk was genuinely puzzled. Why would she be looking outside for peace and happiness? And his experience was, it seemed to be that it's just looked inwards. Stop what you were doing. Stop being busy and, and listen, felt inwards. And I don't know if we questioned him at the time, but it seems to be that. His experience was that he just had to slow down and stop looking outwards, and peace and happiness was already there. And 
In fact, he said generally he was never unhappy, although he did confess that that he was. Uh, there was one occasion when he was unhappy. His mother had died, and he was he regretted not spending so much time with her. And on that occasion, he felt some unhappiness. But genuinely, generally speaking, he was just happy and contented, and not getting around identified in his head, thinking all the time. So there's probably all sorts of reasons why most of us are this way most of the time, believing that we are our thoughts, we are our opinions, we are our views, and we tie ourselves up in tangles, trying to stop thinking and taking sides with this thought against that thought. And and when it, the teachings suggest that we settle into the heart, let the heart open. Accessing a peaceful heart is not something that comes so easily. So the saying there's probably all sorts of reasons for it. If we look at, for instance, Ajahn Punya and I were discussing this subject recently, how our child-rearing patterns in the West have been for the last few decades. <clears throat> well, I don't know what they're like these days. But certainly my generation and his generation, the, the, the baby is born and and then you, you take this little vulnerable creature and away from the mother and the security and safety of the mother and you put it in a plastic box and leave it alone. Sometimes when this poor little creature is screaming and howling and the mother's desperately wanting to pick it up. She's told, no, no, it's good for it. Just leave he or she to, to cry. It'll make them strong, make them independent. Where, where did that idea come from? And what's the result of it? And, well, it seems to me that's results in the trauma of abandonment. And no wonder so many of us feel deeply unsafe, deeply afraid of, of uncertainty those very early stages of life, being abandoned and being left alone. And certainly that's not the case in all cultures. Uh, there are some places where they make sure that the child is never left alone. And I, I very strongly suspect that it wasn't a mother or a woman that came up with the idea that it's good to just let the child lie in this plastic box and scream. That's an idea that somebody had that they believed in. I would expect, and maybe things have moved on since then, and people recognize that believing in the ideas that we have about what makes us strong is not always the right solution. Really, what do we feel in our hearts? What do we feel in our guts? Also, contributing to this disembodied, uh, imbalanced way of being up in our heads all the time uh, uh, I would think is the the lack of uh, really sound wise spiritual education and the, many of the world's religions lay a lot of emphasis on on what they perceive to be a solid substantial individual self and of course we would all know that's that's not the case in Buddhism the, the Buddha encouraged an inquiry into the the not-self nature of phenomena. Not taking a fixed position that there is no self, but certainly 
not holding on to the idea that there is a fixed, permanent, solid, substantial self, that if we cling to it, we're going to feel safe and secure, rather inquiring into, is this body mine? Does this body belong to me? Are these feelings mine? Do they belong to me? If they really belong to me, if they're really mine, surely I would have some control over them. We have all sorts of experiences that we don't have a lot of control over. Nevertheless, in, in the world we live in these days, there's a, a very strong emphasis on controlling. And, and it's the self that does the controlling. So we, we attach to this idea, this perception of a solid, substantial self, and we cling to it and try and find security in that. I would suggest definitely takes us out of our bodies, out of our hearts and up into our heads. My views, my opinions, my thoughts. So again, if I remember correctly that talk I gave a few weeks ago called Fed Up With Becoming Fed Up, considered how difficult, how difficult it can be if we have invested a lot in controlling our emotions, controlling how we feel, trying to figure everything out, believing that rational understanding is going to solve everything. In the process, what regrettably regularly happens is that we try to control the feelings we have by pushing them away, pushing them out of our hearts and into our belly. The idea, for instance, that repressed or denied emotions leads to imbalance, that's a a well-understood idea. However, the experience, can we really, do we have the skill, do we have the sufficiently well-disciplined attention to be able to really catch ourselves as we're doing that, as we're denying our hearts and pushing that energy, pushing those emotions, pushing those feelings into unawareness, into the basement. Do we have that skill? And if we don't, well, one of the consequences is it becomes chronic. It can turn out, turn into being a a really, a really dangerous habit for a lot of people a lot of meditators and try to engage in a conversation about, well, how, how do you feel about this? And say, well, I think it's, no, no, how do you feel about it? Well, my opinion is, no, no, how do you feel about it? And that, for a lot of people, a lot of men anyway, there can be a real struggle feeling what we feel, really just simply allowing the feeling to be there and the feeling center in the heart like feeling simply disappointed, to simply feel disappointed, or disillusioned, to simply feel disillusioned. I had this experience recently, I was in a situation where I felt enormously disillusioned with what was going on, and it was really challenging. However, what do we do about it? Do we go up into our heads and distract ourselves from that painful feeling in our hearts? Do we push it down to the belly and pretend it's not happening? Or can we simply allow it to be there? Again, as I was saying in that talk, can we live in the living room and not escape up into the attic or push it down into the basement? Can we do that? 
Unfortunately, for a lot of us, we can't do that. Now, this is not to say that we should never store stuff in the basement. There's a time and a place for storing stuff in the basement, for parking our feelings in the belly. Like if a parent is having to support and take care of a child who's gone through a terrible, painful experience, you know, the parents just got to park their feelings for now, uh, keep their heart clear enough and hopefully their mind clear enough and then support the child through the ordeal. And then when that job's done, then what do we do? Well, then it's time to soften your belly, breathe, soften the upper chest and feel what we feel and let go. And maybe that's the time when the tears flow. Earlier wasn't the time for getting caught up and crying and dealing with you know, the relationships we have with our emotional household. And we need to park, sometimes we need to park our feelings in the basement, in our belly. However, when it becomes a habit, that's really unfortunate. The heart can grow cold and dark and lonely. It's like some years ago, I was visiting with a monk friend, his mother's place, and we were staying there for a wee while, and, and uh, I saw into the basement of the house, virtually floor to ceiling, I think mostly food, that she had, it was clearly an affliction, it was, I think, what they call an hoarder, that just tons of tins and probably instant noodles and soup, they just huge amount of stuff stored in the basement. That wasn't functional storing, that was dysfunctional storing. Well, something similar can happen to us energetically, where at a certain stage of life we decide it's too painful to feel what we feel in our hearts. It's too painful to allow our native sensitivity. And so we develop this habit of chronically pushing feelings down into the basement and denying them. Part of the result of that is not just becoming feeling alienated and like there's something seriously missing in our lives and then running around distracting ourselves trying to find what's missing, what's missing and getting up to all sorts of entertainment and perhaps drugs and things to try and make ourselves feel wholehearted again. Yeah. Also, part of the difficulty of pushing stuff down into the basement is it throws us out of balance. Eventually, when more research is done by scientists in this topic, I'd be very surprised that they don't find out that all sorts of physical, emotional and mental illnesses come from this dysfunction. Again, we're not saying it's wrong to park energy in the belly, to control our feelings for the time being. What's a difficulty is when it becomes chronic. And, and with affluence, where we have so many opportunities these days to control the world we live in, we feel we're entitled to do it. We don't even know we're doing it. And since most people around us are doing it, controlling everything in their lives, or trying to control everything in their lives, including their feelings and their persona and how other, see, other people see them, they think, well, it's normal. However, the result is that people seem to think it's normal to be unhappy. And 
if we accept that story, well, that's tragic and a life of sadness is the result. However, thankfully, there is an alternative and presumed everybody here doesn't accept that story and, and is interested in an alternative, how to, how to deal with this habit of denying our sensitivity and pushing feelings down into unawareness. And if we get inspired and encouraged to explore engaging and exercises to soften our belly, to open the heart, what chanting can be about, breathing exercises can be about, physical exercising about, massage can be about, to reopening up and allowing our being to return to some sort of balance, we shouldn't expect it to be easy. And if we have a backlog of denied dukkha, which most of us have, it can feel very threatening once we start to open up. It often happens to people on retreat. And the spiritual exercises do what they're supposed to do and our habits of denying are undermined and guess what? We start to become aware of things we just thought we'd completely dealt with or forgotten about and there they are vividly alive still. And or in everyday life when sickness comes along or, or some life challenge, feeling threatened or death of a, of a loved one maybe, life's challenges and how controlling mechanisms are overridden and then all of that which we denied can start to surface and we can start to feel overwhelmed. What is it we feel overwhelmed by? It's not life. I mean, everybody else is getting around managing. Well, not everybody, but maybe most of the people around us are managing and we're in the midst of it going through this intense trauma. And trauma is a good word for it. That's a lot of what we're dealing with. Denied dukkha is another way of talking about trauma. That unmet pain, unmet dukkha that we push out of awareness because we don't want to or we don't feel ready or able to deal with it. So if we get inspired and want to open up and start to feel what we feel and return to balance, don't expect it to be easy. And the image that comes to my mind, or one image that comes to my mind, is when I was a teenager, I remember, where I was growing up in Morrinsville, a small rural town in the North Island of New Zealand, and around the age of 14 or 15, I, I, uh, I had a job of delivering newspapers in the morning, very early in the morning, getting up and going out in the frost and delivering newspapers and, and then when I'd come home my fingers would be frozen and I, I, I can't remember exactly now but I suspect it was like I seem to have this image of not being able to undo my coat and buttons or undo my shoelaces and my fingers were so frozen and then when you put your fingers under warm water it's so painful as the lifeblood starts to flow through the fingers again it's so painful you know you've got to do it though, so as to get your fingers working again. That's the energy flowing back where it had been so cold that it wasn't flowing. And something like that maybe also we experience happening in our hearts and physically. In our upper chest, you start to feel more as the warmth starts to return and we stop denying our sensitivity and allow 
ourselves to feel what we feel. Even though it can feel intensely threatening, maybe there's something within us as, yeah, this is what's called for. We're not committed to denying anymore. Lying to ourselves about what we feel, whether it's disillusionment or sadness or, or repulsion. You know, in some situations in life, you look at just so repulsive, feel aversion. Now, if it goes into hatred, well, that's really difficult. That's really an issue. And that's really unwholesome. However, denied, the denied pain of aversion, it sometimes just needs to be received. That's all it's called for. It doesn't need to be judged. It just needs to be, just needs to be met. Just needs to be recognized, needs to be allowed. And it takes a lot of skill. We're used to denying and we're used to indulging. Indulging in aversion, that turns into hatred and that's very dangerous. Indulging in sadness, that can also be very dangerous and take us into depression. Indulging in fear can take us into terror. Denying and indulging is not the ways the Buddha taught the middle way, that way of developing the spiritual faculties, so there's that steadiness of attention, that maturity of sensitivity, to be able to meet ourselves where we're at, with all the hurt, no judgment, and no necessary analysis, a feeling awareness. There's a place for analysis, for sure. However, if all we're doing is analyzing conceptually, that's like, you know, like learning the road code. It's necessary if you're going to drive a car to learn the road code. It's really necessary. If you want to be safe and legal, which you certainly should do, you need to learn the road code. However, learning the road code is not the journey. And likewise with the theory of Dhamma, we feel really good when we come across the theory of Dhamma. Because there's a lot of strength, a lot of faith, a lot of conviction. Oh, there is a teaching, there is a way. However, that's only going to take us so far. And then after that we need to stop thinking about the theory and come back down to the rest of our being, into our hearts, into our bodies, and feel what we feel. That is if we are really interested in returning to balance. In a conversation I had recently with a young friend who, with whom I have interesting Dhamma conversations sometimes. Sometimes he was relating to me how he'd been reflecting on, investigating the theme of the not-self nature of certain phenomena. And, and then in the process, what appeared into his awareness was this perception of how often with his, his mindfulness of breathing meditation, he comes across this feeling of being chronically inhibited or limited in a certain way. Not necessarily a thought, but a sensation of limited capacity to breathe. What was really nice was that when the recollection or the reflection on the not-self-nature phenomena merged together with a feeling awareness of the limited breathing, there was a deep letting go. As an example, just to mention, as an example of how we need to include all of our being in this practice, not just abiding in our heads. If we're interested in happiness, which of course we all are, we need to do much more than just think about Dhamma. 
can start feeling very enthusiastic with conceptual understanding of the teachings. However, we need to move on from that, and, and including stop talking, stop sharing all our clever ideas about Dhamma, and really turn attention inwards. Feel the uncertainty that perhaps starts to emerge when we let go of the sense of certainty that comes with our, our initial concepts of the path of practice. To feel uncertain about where we're at. We should feel uncertain if we're uncertain. That's what we're supposed to feel. However, what does the fear of uncertainty really feel like in our chest, in our guts? There's a lot of information there, a lot of teaching there. Not just ideas that we have. Sometimes, uh, not so much these days, but in the past, I, I sometimes used to look around the internet to listen to Dhamma talks and from different teachers, and I confess, not really, I, I, uh, this is not, I don't mean to be disrespectful or, 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 or critical, but there's, often when I listen to talks, it's like, where's the, where's the enthusiasm? You know, I expect these, these people started out in practice very enthusiastic about Dhamma practice, but sometimes listening to these Dhamma talks, there doesn't seem to be any enthusiasm. The, the aliveness is missing. Something's missing. What's missing? I suspect that what's missing is the, the, uh, the heart frequency. I suspect that some of these people are still finding security and confidence in the concepts of Dhamma. And sooner or later we're going to have to let go of that security and face the fear of not knowing, the fear of the unknown. And hopefully by that time we've prepared ourselves so that when that backlog of dukkha starts to surface, like you know, we denied the fact that we felt uncertain and we were afraid of the feeling of uncertainty, denied that and pushed it into unawareness. When we stop denying and start allowing, hopefully by that time we've developed our faculties to be able to really meet ourselves there. And to be able to study the dukkha, to get really interested. As I've said many times before, we need to change our approach to dukkha instead of seeing suffering as a symptom of our failure, is to inhibit that judgment. This is the message. This is the message. And we need to find ways of cultivating a welcoming relationship to dukkha in the body, in our hearts. Not following the habit, it's so easy to go up to our heads and start thinking, can we inhibit that and just stay with the feeling in the chest? in the belly, fear of uncertainty, not knowing, sadness, disappointment. Can we rest with that and let it teach us? I refer to it as Ajahn Dukkha. There's all these external Ajahns for which we're very grateful. The real Ajahn is Ajahn Dukkha. And when we get that message, well, then we can start to learn what we need to learn. Like some forms of dukkha, not very intense. 
we don't need to pay a lot of attention. We can just cut through them. Just, just turn away from it. Don't give it any energy. Just deprive it of your attention. And that works. It disappears. Other qualities of dukkha, we need to study it. We need to analyze it. We need to reflect on it. We need to question it. See where is it coming from. And that's the one I refer to as seeing through. So cutting through, seeing through. And then there's another quality of dukkha which I refer to as burning through. And that's that quality of dukkha whereby we don't, there's nothing we can do about it. We're not ready. We're not ready to deal with it. It's too intense. So all we have to do is endure it. There was a guest in the monastery here recently who shared how they had spent some of their time here doing burning through dukkha practice down at the lake. I think they did nine laps of the lake one afternoon or one day. Is doing burning through dukkha practice. It's important, we understand, that the different qualities of intensity of dukkha. Is this cutting through, seeing through, or burning through dukkha? If we don't see that, well then we just apply whatever thought comes to our mind, and we just see if we can deal with it with this. We're not subtle enough, not sophisticated enough in our feeling awareness to be able to read what's going on. So the Buddha said, I teach two things. I teach dukkha and the cessation of dukkha. I teach suffering and the ending of suffering. Unfortunately, a lot of people pay attention to the idea of the cessation of dukkha, to the ending of suffering, without having done the first course, without really learning how to direct attention here and now, judgment-free, whole being awareness of dukkha, the experience of dukkha. And until we do that, well, we're not getting all the information. If we do want to do that, well, then we need to be willing to allow ourselves to feel intensely challenged. Like, feel like sometimes it maybe, maybe sometimes it feels like you're standing on the edge of overwhelm. I mentioned before about being overwhelmed. Well, if you do fall into being overwhelmed, that's pretty regrettable, and hopefully you've got a, some friends who can help you when, if that happens, and some skills and resources to support yourself out of being overwhelmed. However, there's nothing wrong with reaching the point where you feel like you're on the edge of overwhelm. That's bound to happen. If you're interested in dealing with this backlog of denied dukkha, no longer lying to ourselves about life, allowing ourselves to return to feeling what we feel and trusting in our native sensitivity, if we're interested in that, well then it's quite likely that we'll find ourselves standing on the edge of overwhelm. And can we just be there? Or are we so caught up in having to progress in practice? having to overcome our suffering, having to achieve jhanas or achieve insight or something. Do we have the modesty? Do we have the restraint? Do we have the humility to patiently bear with the feeling of being on the edge of overwhelm? There's a very good teaching story that Ajahn Chah or an example of Ajahn Chah's own practice, who some of you may be familiar with, where he had been used to progressing 
and practice. And, and then he reached the point, he described it as like standing on the edge. It's a long time ago since I listened to the talk. And uh, I'm not sure my grasp of Thai was that good anyway, but the impression I have was that he was talking about standing like on the edge of a cliff and he couldn't progress and he would go back and in meditation he'd keep making effort to get to the same point again and he couldn't get past it. He just reached there and just stuck there. And if I remember correctly, he talked about being stuck in this state for two years. And he was somebody who didn't like asking other people for help. He liked to figure things out for himself, at least as how he reported it. However, on this occasion, he was really feeling stuck. And he fortunately came across this meditation monk, Lumpo One, I think his name was. He was a, a contemporary of, of Ajahn Li. And he asked this Ajahn One how to deal with his situation and, and explained what had been going on for him. And Ajahn One gave this very interesting report about, oh, yeah, all sorts of things can happen in practice. You want to hear what happened in my practice? And he went on to describe about how he said, he said, I was sitting meditation and I started sinking into the ground and I don't know how far I sank. I just sank as far as you can sink. And it really felt like this. And then once I'd sank as far as you can sink, then I started coming back up again and my body reached the surface, but it didn't stop there. And then it started levitating. And it really felt like this. It really looked like this. It really seemed like this. And and then he said, my body rose up into the, into the air and hit the trees and exploded. And he said, I could see my, my intestines hanging off the trees. And he said, if I didn't have enough sati, that really, that could have been a big trouble when that was happening. Because it really did seem like that was what was happening. And, and he wasn't dreaming. I didn't tell him, you weren't dreaming. He said, no, no, this is really what seemed to be happening. And, so all sorts of things can happen in practice. And Ajahn Chah says, well, that's all well and good, but what about my situation? And, and Lumpur One said, well, you know, he said, the expression he used was, Teng ti sot hang sanya lao. hang sanya lao, which literally translates as, you've reached the edge of perception. For where you're at in your practice, you're not ready to go forward. And what do you do when you reach the edge of perception? You wait. Now, if we're caught up in greed and trying to overcome our suffering and get rid of our defilements, we don't have the restraint, we don't have the modesty, we don't have the humility, we don't have the patience to stand there and bear with the unbearable feeling of being about to be overwhelmed, or whatever the painful feeling is, whatever the dukkha is. We keep pushing and we can unfortunately not learn what we need to learn. So this verse number two from the Dhammapada, all states of being are determined by the heart. It's the heart that leads the way. As surely as our shadow never leaves us, so happiness follows when we speak or act from a pure heart. So hopefully these considerations this evening will support you in your own practice of recognizing the heart domain. Thank you very much this evening for your attention.